Imagine playing backgammon with Kurds in northern Iraq, or sipping a beer in an Albanian bomb shelter. How about gaining a taste for the Kami Kitsch poster art of North Korea? I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're venturing to some of the most unlikely destinations in the world. Our guide is Tony Wheeler, the founder of Lonely Planet. His company publishes guidebooks to virtually every country on Earth. Tony just returned from a tour of what he calls the Badlands. He's got a rucksack full of lessons and stories from North Korea, Iran, Burma, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and Cuba, places where avoiding the tourist crowds is the least of your concerns. And I think in some ways, tourists get a better impression of these places than people who really are studying them and looking at it from the media point of view. Tony Wheeler describes tourism in the axis of evil and a few other surprising places. Coming up in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. What countries are your travel dreams taking you to? Lately, when Tony Wheeler dreams up a new itinerary, he's visiting some of the last places most would consider for a nice little vacation. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're joined by the head of Lonely Planet Publications. Tony Wheeler's company produces guidebooks for practically every country on the planet. He's just written an account of his recent travels to some of the countries most Westerners think of as a bit chancy. His new book is called Badlands, A Tourist on the Axis of Evil. Tony joins us for the hour ahead to tell us about his adventures in some very surprising destinations. Tony, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. You've written a book called Badlands. Badlands, a tourist on the axis of evil. First of all, which countries did you visit on this? Well, I, I started off, I, I tell people that Mr. Bush inspired the book. I should, I should have dedicated it to George Bush. That As soon as he said there's an axis of evil and there are three countries on the list, my first thought was, well, I've got to go there. That has to be on my list as well. So Iran, Iraq, and North Korea were the first three. And then Burma and Cuba, because we've been criticized a lot for doing a book about Burma. And people say that you shouldn't go to Burma because by going there, you're supporting a evil military dictatorship, which it is. So Burma went in. And then I thought the contrast between that, that country and Cuba, where lots of Americans say you shouldn't go there. And there's been 50 years of attempts by American presidents to do a little regime change in Cuba unsuccessfully. And then I just added a few more. Libya, Mr. Gaddafi definitely did um, support terrorism at one stage. He says he's reformed now, but it certainly was not a good country. It was a bad country for quite a long spell. Um, Afghanistan, it's where the Taliban were hanging out. Saudi Arabia, it's where the 9-11 hijackers came from. And then Albania just sort of snuck in by accident. I was just in Albania at the same time, and I thought, here's a weird little country, 45 years of total isolation, a nutty communist dictator, and I thought, well, I'll put that in as well. Definitely the most isolated country around Europe, wasn't it? For Absolutely, it was for a long time. And I think people still think it's isolated. And the reality, of course, is there's no reason for it to be isolated at all anymore. Didn't their dictator make everybody change their name so they wouldn't have bourgeois history in their uh, name or something? Uh, uh, there's probably something of that nature. But he, he also set them to work building bunkers, that there were 700,000 little concrete bunkers around the country where if the invasion came, we have no idea who the invaders were going to be, but if the invasion came, the brave Albanians could all retreat into these bunkers and keep the enemy at bay. So we'll see these little uh, bomb shelters on the beaches when we go there as tourists in the future. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, right. they're a tourist attraction. Now, when did you visit these countries, Tony? 
it was over several years. I, I did the last three last year, 2006. So mm-hmm. Iraq, Afghanistan, and um, Albania were all done last year. And the rest were done over a couple of years prior to that. Now, I was thinking about what makes a country bad. I'll let you explain bad. But I, I was thinking common denominators. There's a, a religious common denominator. There's a communism common denominator. And there's relations with the United States common denominator. Uh, how do you how do you factor all that in? Well, they they all came in to some extent. I mean, some of them had perfectly fine relations with the United States, Saudi Arabia in particular, apart from mm-hmm. sending some would be pilots to fly planes places they shouldn't fly them. But um, others, of course, have had bad relations with the U.S. for a long time. And Cuba, of course, is the best example of that. At the end of the book, I ran my evil meter over it. I said, you know, we can apply this meter to it and register how bad they are on the basis that. A country that's bad doesn't treat its own citizens very well, and that may be not letting them vote for who they'd like to run the country or not let them work for what they'd like to do as, as work and employment or not follow the religion they'd like to follow. So that would give you points in, in that category. If you sponsor terrorism, as Libya certainly has done, as Iran most probably has done, as North Korea certainly has done, well, that's a bad thing as well. Or, or if you threaten your neighbors as um, Libya certainly did, as Saddam very certainly did. Mm-hmm. That's another bad point. And, and then because any meter has to read to any, anybody who's seen Spinal Tap knows the meter has to go to 10 or preferably even beyond 10. Because I was giving three points to each of the other things, I had to add an extra bonus point. And you can get that for having a really good personality cult. And any real Badland dictator really isn't happy until he has statues and billboards and portraits scattered all over the country. So that's a common denominator you find. Oh, that's that. definitely a common. Yeah. Of most of them, there were a few sort of surprises, the places oh. that didn't, didn't go in for that. But, but um, yeah, most of them did rather like that. I'm talking with Tony Wheeler. He's the um, founder of Lonely Planet Publishing, and Tony's written a new book called Badlands, A Tourist on the Axis of Evil. You said a tourist on the axis of evil. I think most travel writers like us like to think of our customers as travelers rather than (laughs) tourists. Did you give that any thought? Yeah, I definitely. I wanted to underline that tourist angle. I went in there as as if I was an innocent. I I didn't go in with any um, support or, you know, I, I wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest when I was in Iraq. And I went in there someone looking around and seeing what it was like as a visitor. You had minders in some countries, I understand. Yeah, because going to North Korea, there is no way you can go to North Korea without a guide. You know, the, the only option is a guided tour. You could be a guided tour of one, but you've got someone looking over your shoulder all the time. And there were a couple other places where either I'd, I'd hired a driver and guide to get around or mm. um, Libya, part of my trip there was in a little guided group. But uh, most of it I tried to do by myself. And certainly, mm-hmm. you know, Iraq, which is probably the, I guess I have to say it was the scariest. Um, I went there by myself. Hmm. You went to Kurdistan by yourself. I went to Kurdistan. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. I mean, I, I am not a, I'm not a madman. I did not go to. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't want to see you in Baghdad right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to see myself in Baghdad right now. And but Kurdistan, I, Kurdistan, you could actually travel comfortably as a single tourist. I had no problems in Kurdistan at all. And I, I, I had nothing booked. I had nothing planned. I didn't even have a visa which technically you do need to go there, but I, I didn't. I like a term you used in the book. You said, will, uh, will Kurdistan do a Slovenia? <laughs> what did you mean about that? Well, the Kurds would love to just break away from that whole mess and you know, leave the south and the, the center of Iraq to fight it out between themselves, and they'd be an independent country, which is more or less what Slovenia did. Slovenia broke away from Yugoslavia before Yugoslavia just went into turmoil. and you know, the Bosnia... I think with virtually no bloodshed in Slovenia. Yeah, Slovenia you know, got away with it completely. Will Turkey let this happen? No. And that's the whole problem, that the Kurds are very much aware that if they did ever break away from the rest of Iraq, that it would just drive the Turks through the wall. 
So they're going to have to really have a kind of quasi-independence as a pragmatic which way. Which they've to. effectively got. I mean, they yeah. are a quasi-independent nation. that they, They're guarding the borders themselves, which is why I got in without a visa, because they weren't requiring you to have a visa. They've effectively got their own border to the rest of Iraq. You just crossed in from Turkey without a visa? Yeah. Huh. I just, I just, when I flew out to eastern Turkey, I got off the plane, I went to the first taxi in the line, and I said, take me to Iraq. I love Let's it. Let's go. <laughs> Did he go from Diyarbakir? Diyarbakir, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Wow. So you can cross right into Kurdistan. And did you feel like you were actually contributing to the local economy in a constructive way? Yeah. I mean, I, I took taxis. I, um, I stayed in hotels. What, I, what money do they use there? Um, I use U.S. dollars. Works huh. well. Yeah, I bet yeah. it does. So mm. you could get a lot of, uh, or euros. You could just get some cash, hard cash. In a hard specific. cash, you know. I was just in uh, Montenegro, and they use euros. They don't even have their own currency. These little no. countries, they'll be creative about how to keep commerce going. Yeah. The euro these days is as, as usable as the dollar, but of course the, the American dollar still has the dollar note, which is a, an extraordinarily useful piece of currency. People still relate to that, uh, what a dollar is Oh, yeah, worth. because yeah. You know, there, there's, no European, there's no euro note smaller than five euros. Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah, so, so if you want greenback. Things, the greenback is the thing, yeah. Again, I'm talking with Tony Wheeler. Tony... You're English, but you sort of adopted Australia, is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a naturalized citizen of Australia, but I've also still retained my British passport. So, I've so got the two is, that, is that handy when you're uh, traveling in it, Badlands, it's, two passports? It's very handy. And actually, the other thing it's handy for is you can always, if you're having trouble getting a visa, as I did with some of these places, you know, you're not tied down waiting for your passport to come back from the embassy. You can go and travel on your other passport. I think there's a lot of Americans right now that wish they had a, an <laughs> extra passport. It would be, be very useful. <laughs> To read. This book was fun. It was but fun to travel. I mean, I, I, I just had... You I mean, had here fun I am, being there. I had fun. I Actually, I said it the second day I was in Iraq. I was saying, this sounds completely ridiculous, but I'm really enjoying Iraq. And I had, I had fun in Afghanistan. I had fun now, in Now, in Saudi Afghanistan, Arabia. I read about... You went to this site north of Herat. I love Herat. You took a, a trip, what, a few hours north of Herat, and you went to a minaret that had not... It was a, it was a lot of... Uh, if it had been on a freeway, you know, if you'd been driving out of Seattle or Chicago... It would have been a few hours. As it was, it was 15 hours. Oh, 15 hours. Was Just, it a minibus or was it a taxi? No, I, I, was in a, a I was in a, what was I in? A Toyota Hilux, a sort of pickup truck. But this is like a major site if there was tourism in Afghanistan. It would be a major site, yeah. I mean, it, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's effectively one of the symbols of Afghanistan, rather, since they wrecked the Buddhas. I mean, the Bamiyan Buddhas would certainly be the symbol of Afghanistan. But this minaret of jam is the, it's the Eiffel Tower or the Taj Mahal or the Statue of Liberty of Afghanistan. And I was there in May last year, and I was the first visitor for the year. And I thought, that, that is great. You know, what did that feel like? <laughs> it felt terrific. And I'd, you know, I'd known about it. for. I went to Afghanistan in the early 70s, and I didn't go there then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I knew about it. So it's been on my list of things I wanted to see for ages. And when we finally got there, it was night. You know, I knew it was out there, but I couldn't really see it. This is sort of the cultural icon of that country, and you were the first tourist there in, of the in entire May, year in May. In May last year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. You also went to the, the place where the Bamiyan Buddhas were. Yeah. And you I mean an interesting comment in your book. You said, anger is something Islam seems to do well. It's quite true. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, there's, we, we're used to seeing, you know, the fists waving and the, um, and the, the statements, you know, death to the great Satan in, in Iran. But it's sort of said as a, almost as a, you know, something you have to say. It's like graffiti on the wall rather than being really serious. If you're an honest reporter, not being yeah, cowed yeah. by political correctness. I mean, one so. of the, the other things I said in the, um, 
in that book is unfortunately the, the Islam is not the only religion which is specialized in knocking down. I mean, it's, it's been a Christian thing, you know. The Christian missionaries in the Pacific were very keen on knocking down pagan temples. You made an interesting comment that the Titanic was a popular movie in Afghanistan. <laughs> yes. They, that? The Afghans for a period were obsessed with the Titanic. It was an extraordinarily popular movie at a time when it was totally illegal to watch films during the, this was the Taliban era. And as a result, the, the film sort of turned into a wedding cake. Why was it popular with those people? Well, the, the the Africans told me that it was a. Uh, the reason they wanted to make it into a wedding cake, of course, was, was because, you know, having a Titanic wedding cake looked terrific. But it also symbolized this fact that people could be unhappy, that they weren't the only people who were, who were suffering hardship and danger and unhappiness. And the film was also about love, and it was about love that wasn't scripted, that wasn't, you know, with the permission of your parents. It was two couples who'd fallen in love independently. So the Afghan young generation embraced it? They loved it, yeah. That, oh. that film was a huge hit in Afghanistan. As a travel writer, to catch that, that's what good travel writing is all about. I'm talking with Tony Wheeler. We're discussing his new book, Badlands. Those faraway places With strange-sounding names Far away over the sea Those faraway places With a strange-sounding name are calling, calling me, calling, calling me. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Kaji Meitame Oledapash, Aingwa Maasai Land, Naisafiri Oryx Steve. That's in my Maasai language. My name is Meitame Oledapash. I'm from Maasai Land in Kenya, and I travel with Rick Steve. Kaji Meitame Oledapash, Naingwa Maasai Land, Naisafiri Oryx Steve. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're getting to know one of my biggest competitors in the field of guidebook writing. Tony Wheeler is the head of Lonely Planet, a publisher much loved among travelers because they cover virtually every country on Earth. His latest target, what he calls the Badlands. Tony oversees the publications of travel titles to literally 
every place on this planet, I think that's safe to say. Is that right? That is safe to say. We, in some way or other, we do cover everywhere on the planet. And I was in Papua New Guinea once, and I was very thankful that somebody <laughs> had the, whatever you want to call it, to write a book about a country that, I guess a lot of Australians go there, but not many Americans go to Papua New Guinea. The lonely yeah, planet. Funnily enough, Papua New Guinea is just beginning to bounce back at the moment. You know, it, as a tourist destination, it was regarded as unsafe, and very few visitors were going there. But for some reason, in the last few years, it's sort of been coming up off the floor. Well, you're overseeing the publication of 400 different uh, country titles and city titles, and so on. you're probably not spending a lot of time updating your guidebook to uh, Madagascar. But you've actually been on the road quite a bit, writing a new book called Badlands. Tony, you were in North Korea, and you called it a cross between a Stalinist theme park and a gulag run by Monty Python. I love that description. And it's true. I, I, I've never been to a country quite as bizarre as North Korea. I, I, it was a fantastic experience going there. I really enjoyed it. And I was surprised, given that there are very few visitors, I was surprised how many visitors I, I met, the small number I met, who were on their second or third trip, that they, they found it as fascinating as I did. Very few visitors. I would think there'd be no visitors. There, you had to have a minder, so you've got to go through some extra hoops. You're not going to Denmark you, here. No, you can't just sort of turn up and say, let me in. You know, you're, In fact, there were more hoops in getting a visa than any place I've ever had a visa. You had to sort of give a complete list from the day, day you left school, your employment history. I would imagine they said, why on earth are you coming here? Didn't you have to, did you tell them honestly no. what you're going to do? No, I didn't. I, I, I said I was just a tourist. tourist just a really curious guy with some yeah. money to I, throw I away. I didn't, wanna... didn't admit I was a guidebook writer. <laughs> so you had a, a time in Korea and you had a chance to get away from your minder or was he with you all the time? You could have quite easily got away from your minder, but Nick, the, the English guy who was my sort of key holder, he was the guy who had the key to the door and got us in said, look, if you wandered off from your minder, you could go and wander around town and you could probably have several hours before someone would finally say, well, what, what are you doing here? And hauled you in for a telling off. But you'd just be told off. But your minder, your guide, who should have been keeping an eye on you, he's going to the salt mines. So wow. basically he said, don't do it. Yeah, and, if you uh, care about your minder, yeah, you get him in trouble. Yeah, so absolutely. you actually saw other Western travelers in North Korea just on vacation? Yeah, well, we were a group of about, I'd say, 10 or 12. I've got a photograph of us, so I could count them and say how many there were. And they were... Um, they kept, kept you together, probably. They kept us together, yeah. yeah. You know, we were 10 or 12, and with a couple of Brits, a couple of Germans. There was one American in our group. He had dual nationality, so he was traveling on his other passport. Uh -huh. But at the moment, I'm pretty sure Americans can get in. And I've subsequently met a number of Americans who've been there, so Americans definitely can go. Now, you went to Saudi Arabia, which is fascinating to me because... A billion Muslims are obligated to go there once in their lifetime or try to get there on the Hajj, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, effectively Saudi Arabia has a huge tourist business. Yeah. You but it's exclusively Muslim because it's, you yeah. can't see the what no, do you call it? no. The only way you can do it, you have to convert to go there. So it's a, you know, it's a big ask. For your list, you got it's two big passports. Ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was Saudi Arabia like? I found it really interesting because, of course, there are so few tourists there. And I, I remember one of the places I went to was up in the north of Saudi Arabia, Medan Salah, which is a town very much like Petra in Jordan. It was built by the Nabataeans, the same, the same people. Um, but no tourists. It was completely tourist-free. And I bumped into a couple of Canadians there as well who were working in Saudi Arabia. And we had a guide who was Moroccan. And the, the Moroccan guide who spoke English, French, and Arabic, was saying, you know, here it is, this great site, and no visitors. And he said the reason why is if it predates the Prophet, there's no interest in Saudi Arabia. The only interest is something that has a connection to the Prophet. Because all the tourism is religious tourism. It's religious. And if you want to see something that is non-religious, well, let's go overseas. You know, let's go to Europe or America or something. And if you want any kind of hedonism, uh, the Saudis, they head they, for Dubai they, or they're, right? they're off to Dubai or Las Vegas or London or something, you know. 
fun is not on the agenda in Saudi Arabia, although I did have fun. The remarkable thing, though, I, I traveled around with no trouble at all. I, I had a hotel booked my first night in Riyadh. But after that, I just bought airline tickets. I took buses. I rented renter cars. I went into restaurants. I turned up at hotels and said, have you got a room? And I really had no trouble. But at the end of it, I said, OK, I had no trouble. But if I'd been a woman, this would have been an entirely different ballgame, except we've just updated our Middle East guide and we sent a woman there to do it. You sent a woman to research Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, she Why? Had, she had balls, I'd say like, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, she would be I, at a disadvantage, I would think, from a practical point of view well, as a she, researcher. Well, I, I would have thought so too. But on the other hand, I thought it was a really nice idea sending a woman, and she did yeah. it. I mean, she is a, a very um, woman strong traveler. woman. Yeah, yeah. She, she's done our Ethiopia book, you know, which right. is not a, a straightforward book to do either. But I, I've spoken to her subsequently, and she had a driver to drive her around. So of course, she can't drive herself. And she managed it. She went, she checked out everything. She went to everything. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things is women, in a way, almost have more access than men. They're so, so protected, you mean? Yeah, well, a male journalist, you know, gets to talk to men, but that, that's basically it. Right. A, a woman journalist would be, first of all, she'll have honorary male status because she's a foreigner. Right. And secondly, she'll have contact with women. And I, I'm willing to bet that a lot of women probably have far better contact with... Yeah, she has access to 100% of the people. Exactly. So she's, and, and I bet you they have better contact with the women than the men do with the men. The men have a front to keep up. That's interesting. And I, I, I think some of the best writing on Arab countries has been by women. I've noticed some very interesting women who have a passion for the, the place of women in yeah, Islam. Absolutely. Writing about it. Mm. So a lot of these countries that you visited were Islamic, it looks like, but maybe half of them, I guess. If a woman did this trip that you just did, could that happen? Yeah, I, I think... In Iran was interesting, apart from the fact that everyone was so friendly in Iran. Right. That was a surprise. I, it's a while since I've been to a country where, you know, the, the friendliness was just so obvious and so, and so so regular. But also, it's a place where surprisingly, there's a, a lot of business or discussion or talk is with women. The, the, I turned up in Tehran. Again, I had nothing booked. I turned up at the airport. I flew in from Dubai, got off the plane, got my bag, went out. There's a tourist desk there. So I mm. went, I thought, right, I'll book a, a hotel here. Tourist desk was manned by women. Was manned by women, yes. Mm -hmm. right. So you know, I, I'm asking, I'm asking women to book me a hotel. Now you couldn't imagine that in Saudi Arabia. There's no, no way in the world that you know if a man would go into a bank and have a, a woman teller. There are women tellers in banks, but the only customers they deal with are women. Boy, in this day and age of such sanitized travel, going to countries like this. It really gives you a rich travel experience. Oh, Whether it does. you like it or not, you're going to have a rich travel experience. I think so. Yeah, you you do. Um, huh. I had no problems. This was the other thing, though. I mean, I Iran in particular was very easy. I hear that all the time from people. Yeah. America has the biggest misperception about Iran because it's pretty routine for Europeans to go there, I think, relative to these yeah, other countries. Yeah, it, it's not, there's not a great number of tourists there, but, right. but the bus services are excellent. The buses oh. are really comfortable, and they go right on time, and they're economical. The flights are very cheap. There's some very nice hotels. Some of the hotels were just beautiful. Some old old buildings restored, and they were just really nice boutique sort of places. Good restaurants. It was a it was a very pleasant place to travel around. Boy, if more Americans could go to Iran, they'd they'd have a better impression of it. If, if things really break down between our two nations, do you know? I think any any country at all, people when they go to a country, they come away with a better impression oh. than before they went there. And it's the flip side, you know. More people coming to America would go back to their own country with better impressions of America. And it's a sad thing when, when walls are built that yeah. make it tougher for people to get together that way. Uh, you also included Cuba in your list of bad lands, and you went there and you reported on it. 
Uh, were you just trying to tweak the United States there? Or, or oh, yeah, you? absolutely. I mean, that, that was, I mean the, the, the curious thing, of course, is that in Europe, Cuba is, it is a big tourist destination. Apart from the um, Muslims on the Hajj, there are more tourists going to Cuba than any other country I wrote about. Um, it's a huge tourist destination from Europe. And Fidel, to many Europeans, is sort of seen as a hero, you know, yeah. he, partly because he's just stood up to how many American presidents, 50 years of them. So, you know, in that respect, he's, he's seen wow. as a heroic figure. But I, I was extremely ambivalent about Cuba. Some of it I liked very much and some of it I was very uncomfortable with. Why? Because there's two sorts of tourism there. There's the tourism that you can go as a, an independent person and you can travel around by, and it's very easy to travel by yourself. I, Maureen, my wife, and I rented a car and we just drove around. And we picked up hitchhikers all the time because the transport is so difficult for Cubans that they're constantly you know, standing by the roadside with their thumb. And the road signage is so bad, it's really good having a hitchhiker on board because he'll, he or she will tell you, turn left here or That's go right That's a good right travel there. tip, I'm sure. Oh, it's you, definitely worthwhile. You, you have worthwhile. a quasi-guide, really, yeah, and you doing do. somebody you, a favor. Yeah, you do, you're doing both. And, uh, but, but that's kind of a thing in the third world. Is I find the poorer the country, the more likely people just wave cars down and hop in. If there's room in the back of the pickup, hop in. Yeah, absolutely. Still and, today? I mean, that's absolutely. the way it was in Asia. We, we had, I would say we had a hitchhiker in our car um, 90% of the miles we covered in Cuba. And they ranged just from the, you know, one person standing by the road to young couples. We picked up two lawyers once um, to so women people just, That's kids. how they get around. That's how they get around, yeah. Professional people. Mm. You were getting at something I think you said uh, you were a little oh, um, yeah. ambivalent. I would imagine it's because of the crass resort kind of on Absolutely. Place. And that's, that's the other side of tourism. There's the travel around by yourself and staying in little guest houses, right. which Fidel keeps his thumb on. Right. You know, they, they can't be too successful. They can't have more than a certain number of beds. They, right. If you have a little restaurant, it can't have more than 12 seats. As soon as the 13th customer comes in, they've got to be turned away. Even if there's room for them, you just can't. You're not allowed to serve more than 12 people. So there's all these crazy rules restricting people running things, something privately. And then there's these mega resorts where Europeans fly in. They're taken straight from the airport, straight to the resort. Pay European their, prices? But they, well, they, they, they don't pay anything. They pay for everything in advance. Right. Everything you got a little a band on your wrist. Band on your wrist. Eat and so drink you know, whatever you want. Oh, look, I, I just did not Masseuse like that. on the beach, no and then, problem. Uh, yep. And the money uh, and any contact with Cubans who are also bust in for the day disappear at night. I was just in Tangier. And it's a similar thing. It's all these day trippers coming in from the Costa del Sol, scared to death about somebody ripping them off. It reminded me... In a strange way, when I saw these single-file lines of, of rich Western tourists going through the back streets of Tangier, it was like a self-inflicted hostage crisis. <laughs> you know, they were so afraid of getting their bags ripped off. They all had their bags on their front, hugging them like some paranoid kangaroo. I know, I know. It's and uh, the same thing in Cuba. You, you isolate yourself from everything. You pay four times what you should. You do. Yeah, and, huh. I mean, they, they, they do release them. They, they do take them in, you know, day release. They take you to Havana, and you can sort of wander around for the day. And nothing's going to happen. I mean, Cuba's absolutely Now, you mentioned Cuba fine. is such a popular destination. I understand it's the number one Caribbean resort for Canadians and Germans. It's quite possible. And I, you've I got think. a book out on Cuba. Yeah. Uh, I'm absolutely. sure it sells well around the world. Does it sell in the United States? It sells lots in the United States. And but I we met, can't go there. Well, officially you can't go there. I, I think it's just got worse, hasn't it? But I, I met lots of Americans Well, it's just Cuba. got worse. But, but I think regardless of what the rules are, I think what the sales are indicates a little <laughs> sharper idea of how many United States people are going to Cuba. Ballpark, how many Cuba guides would you sell in the United States, would you I, bet? You know, I, I, would just, I, I wouldn't have a clue. But I, I hazard I a guess. Is it 2,000 or 10,000? Oh, more than 10,000, I'm more sure. More than 10,000? Yeah, I'm sure. Americans buy guides to Cuba. 
YouTube, but just so they can page through the uh, look yes, at the pictures. Yes, and, and think of a dream. <laughs> <laughs> now, if an American wants to go to Cuba, they go to Canada and fly in, or they go to Mexico and fly yeah. in. I think you can actually also fly. Well, you can fly from Miami. There is a, there is a daily American. I, I, I think there are two daily American Airlines flights, one to yeah. um, Havana and one to Santiago to Cuba. But I think you can also fly more or less direct via Nassau in the Bahamas. And the, the plane makes a technical stop there to issue you a ticket for the rest of the trip. Wow. I'm well, pretty sure that happens. People who go to Cuba across the board love the experience. That's all I know. Oh, yeah. About. You know, the, the architecture of Havana is wonderful. The music follows you everywhere. Mm. You, know, you can go to the bar where Hemingway used to have his mojitos. What's not to like? I'm speaking with Tony Wheeler, and Tony Wheeler is the founder of Lonely Planet Publications. They've got guidebooks out on every country on this planet. I tell you, if you're going to... You name it. There's a guidebook for you published by Lonely Planet. Tony started the company 30-some years ago. Now he's uh, has the luxury of just traveling to places like Burma and Albania and Afghanistan and Iraq and writing about it. And Tony has had a lot of fun going to these places and reports on it with his new book called Badlands. Tony, you called it the axis of evil, and I've got a hunch you've got the standard outside of the United States impression of our foreign policy and all this kind of thing. What's your political agenda for writing this book? I, I wanted to show that there's a flip side to all these places, that even North Korea, which it, it topped my sort of evil rating because there, there's no question it's not a country that's done a lot of things very well at all. But you have to ask, why did North Korea end up the way it did? And North Korea and South Korea, were, were, they were the first pawns in the Cold War. That, you know, that mm. This was a proxy war, the, the Korean War. It was Russia and the, and the U.S. facing each other, or the USSR in those days, USSR and the U.S., facing each other off and using Cuba as the, the place where the, the war went down. And that's effectively why North Korea has been on this you know, crazy isolationist binge ever since. And they say the first casualty of a war is the truth. And Americans yeah. have been uh, raised with certain interests that have shaped our impressions of places far away. And by traveling, I think we can overcome those misimpressions. When you think of all the places you went, how do you feel your impressions were manipulated by the media? What surprises did you find? So, you know, in some ways, I don't blame the media for the impressions we have because the media are reporting the news. And the news very often is the bad stuff that's going on. It's the upfront activity. The news is not what people are doing in their everyday lives. It's not how life goes on, you know, nine to five, five days a week and weekends off and at somewhere with the kids, which in Iran would be take the kids to the park because the Iranians love going to parks and sitting around drinking tea and quoting poetry to each other. And that's not what you see in, um, in the news. And, that, and that's, but that is the reality that, the, that what you do see as a tourist. And I think in some ways, tourists get a better impression of these places than, than people who, who really are studying them and looking at it from the media point of view. And you could argue a more real impression. I mean, it's just day-to-day, work-a-day life. day life. Going yeah. down to the yeah. pub, seeing kids in the park, taking yeah. photographs of people in the, in the markets and so on. Yeah, absolutely. When I'm traveling, it occurs to me there's parallel worlds. When I was in uh, Bulgaria back during the Cold War, I met more Cubans and Angolans in a week than <laughs> I had met in my whole life. I didn't even realize Angolans and Cubans traveled. But what it occurred to me is they didn't travel to the first world. They traveled to the second world, the communist world. Yeah. Consequently, you have all these exchange programs between Bulgaria and Moscow and Angola and so on. We were just talking about um, Saudi Arabia. And there's huge tourism there, but it's all religious tourism. And if you're... There, There's also... Uh, the, Saudi Arabia was, a, was a, a strange place in many ways. In fact, I, I think I said in the book that after North Korea was the strangest place I went to and probably the second strangest place I visited. And one of the things is that you, you really don't meet Saudis very often. So much of your day-to-day -day contact with people, people you're doing business with or buying something off or booking something with, 
they're never going to be Saudis. Right. If you see somebody working, and not a Saudi is the definition in Saudi Arabia. You know, the, the people doing the, the really the hard work, the laboring and so on, the clearing the tables, it would be Mexicans in the U.S., are going to be Bangladeshis or Pakistanis or Palestinians or Egyptians. The taxi drivers all seem to be Pakistanis, the nicest group of Pakistanis you would care to meet. They all spoke English, um, all dying to talk about cricket, of course, the sport of the developing world in many ways. And the, uh, the educated people, the technical people, are going to be Europeans or Americans. So these Saudis have, they're probably so sparsely populated and they've got so much money that the whole economy is thriving in an imported way. Well, it is thriving in an imported way, except it's not thriving the way it used to be because huh. the oil money, just the last year or two, is, has sort of spurted ahead again as the oil prices went through the roof. Mm. But really, since the oil shock back in the early 70s, oil prices have not gone up that much. They've been, in uh, real terms, fairly stable until very recently. But the population of Saudi Arabia has gone up like a rocket. And so, you wouldn't know this stuff unless you traveled there or you read a book called Badlands by Tony Wheeler. Fresh scrub, baby, mama's kiss on his cheek. Steps off the greyhound with money for a week. A wide-eyed innocent he knows no fear. It takes more than heroes to survive down there in the Badlands. The Badlands. Never said it was fair You're just another singer In a pilgrim suit And the Badlands You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest today is the head of Lonely Planet Publications, Tony Wheeler. You're invited to share your comments on the show. There's a message board ready for your feedback in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Our special guest on this edition of Travel with Rick Steves is the founder and president of Lonely Planet Publications. They're the largest travel guidebook publisher in the world and are based in Melbourne, Australia. Tony Wheeler is with us in our Seattle studio to tell us about some of the dubious places he's visited lately. He's written a book about them. It's called Badlands, a tourist on the axis of evil. Tony has also just released his autobiography, Unlikely Destinations, The Lonely Planet Story. Tony, when I read Unlikely Destinations, it just occurred to me, you just keep working. And now you're going all over the country talking about a book that you don't really need to write. It must be a lot of work. Why are you doing this? I guess I like travel. I, you say I, I can't stop working, and I, I actually think I have stopped working in many ways. I've got really good stuff. You know, they're, they're in the front seat driving the car and navigating. I'm just sitting in the back seat uh, occasionally saying, slow down or speed up, or why don't we stop here and have a look around? So you say, I want to write a book about rickshaws. I do it, yeah, yeah. And Rick you Shaw's did, right? A, I did, yeah. It was probably about 10 years ago. Um, yeah. I traveled mainly around Asia with a photographer, and uh, we did a book on the history of the, the man-powered taxis of Asia. And your uh, latest adventure in travel publishing is called Badlands, a tourist on the axis of evil. You visited Afghanistan, Albania, Burma, Cuba, Iran, Iraq, Libya, North Korea, and Saudi Arabia. And uh, <laughs> I noticed you put them in that order in the book, and I thought, why did he put them in this order? And it's alphabetical. Did you do that on purpose? I, I did, yeah. I, I thought could I, I could have done it in the order I saw them, in which case um, Afghanistan would have been the last because I, I went to Afghanistan most recently and Albania would have been the second from last. Or I could have put them in the, the ranking of how bad they were or how unbad they were, in which case probably Burma or Cuba would have been at the bottom of the line for badness. Meaning the least bad. The least bad, yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. 
And are you concerned you're going to be sending people to Afghanistan and they're going to step on a mine and get blown up? I don't think I'm going to send people to... If people want to go to the places that are readily visitable there, and Cuba, of course, is very readily visitable. Burma is easy to visit. The only problem with visiting Burma is your own decision whether you think it's okay to visit a country that's imprisoned a Nobel Prize winner who won an election. And, some well, and that is an, an issue. Is, are is you, when issue, you go yeah. to a country, many people would say you shouldn't go to Turkey because of human rights abuses. You shouldn't go to Burma. Um, what's your take on that? I think if you feel that you shouldn't go there, then you shouldn't go there. I think there's no question of that. And I think there are lots of countries where bad things go on. And yet I think it's important that visitors go there. Now, you've got a situation with the Tibet region of China or Tibet as an independent nation, as some people feel it should be. And the Dalai Lama says you should go there. The Dalai he, Lama says you should go to Tibet. Absolutely. Huh. He, he says he wants people to go and see you know, what the country is like and what's happening and his feeling that Tibetans are not being treated well. Now, if you or I were to go to any of these countries you've just mentioned, and we'd spend 50 bucks a day if we're backpacking or a couple hundred bucks a day if you're doing the normal high-end tourist thing, is that money helping uh, normal people? or is that Absolutely. Going to... And you can, of course, you can work it out. You can do a better job of getting that money into local people's pockets. That's important, isn't it? I think it if is. If you care. If you care, yeah. And we, we make a big song and dance about that in our Burma book by saying, here's how to do it. Here's the, here's the way of traveling and making sure your money does go into local pockets and not into government pockets. In your guidebook to Burma. In our guidebook because to Burma, Because that's yeah. a, a right up front concern. You've got thoughtful people, they're curious about Burma, but they don't want to aggravate the problem by enriching the bad elements of Burma. Absolutely. So and, uh, you can do it. That's good news. You, you can do it. I mean, inevitably, some of the money is going to sure. go to the government. You know, there's going to be fees to museums that are run by the government, there's going to be the visa fees, there's going to be this and that. But you can make a case that you're their window on the West. You're coming in and giving people contacts who are influential in the first world. You're right on that one. And one of the things, of course, in Burma is that the Burmese really want to talk to you. They may be concerned about talking to other Burmese because they never know who the spy is going right. to be unless they really trust another person. Right. But you as a visitor, it's clearly obvious that you're not a spy. You're not going to shop them into the government. I feel like I'm doing a huge good deed when I travel in places that are not free and am available to local people just to be their window on the West. You're, you're right, and you're... We met some Burmese who said you're also like an umbrella. You sort of shelter them from the government. That yeah. If there are tourists around, the government is not going to do the sort of things they can get away with when there aren't tourists around. Getting back to the countries specifically that you covered in your book, Badlands, if you asked any American, what are the six or eight most dangerous and unwelcoming places? These would probably make the list. Did you feel physically unsafe in any of these countries? The only places where I felt there was real danger, I mean, these days, bad things can happen to you anywhere. I mean, you could be on the subway in Madrid or the underground in London. In the last few years, bad mm -hmm. things have happened. So it can happen anywhere. But the only places I felt really unsafe on this trip was, of course, in Iraq, because Iraq is an unsafe place. Although the north where I was really has been fairly safe for the last five, six years. There's, there's been very limited incidents. Mm -hmm. There certainly hadn't been for at least a year or so before I went there. So I, I didn't feel concerned in the Kurdistan region. But nevertheless, it is Iraq. And Iraq, a lot of bad stuff is going on. And Afghanistan, where the south of the country, and I didn't go to Kandahar in the Helmand province. I went, mm -hmm. I went to a lot of the rest of Afghanistan. I did travel fairly widely in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And Afghanistan, you know, random things can happen. Although it's happening 90% of the time in the south, it could happen 10% of the time in the north. Yeah, I spoke recently with one of your authors who wrote the guidebook to Afghanistan, and he made the case that there are people there as reasonably safe tourists. I mean, it is yeah. a risk. It's probably more dangerous than Denmark, but it's doable. Tony, when you were traveling in these countries, 
they may have serious problems between governments, Cuba and America, North Korea and America. How did that correlate to the feeling about the man on the street and you, the Western tourist? Was it parallel or...? I, th- I think that people separate you as a visitor from your government. If you're an American in Iran, there's going to be a real interest in you as an American. You come from the country, they're having this big argument with at a government-to-government level. The questions they'll ask you will be, how do you see it in your country? What, what, what's your discussion about the problem with your friends, your neighbors, your, your colleagues? And you're regarded as a, a human being rather than a foot soldier for the... Um, the for political the, plans of the, the government. What, whoever's in power. I mean, mm. ever since Nixon days, I've had people tell me, I don't like Nixon, but I like you. Let's talk. You know, it's yeah. just... And also, America can complain about, you know, how elections go here or something like that, but every country has the same kind of uh, behind-the-scenes maneuvering and so on in their, quote, democracy. And I find people around the world understand that there's governments that represent some of the people, but certainly not all of the people in those countries, and you don't judge individuals by their government. Absolutely. You know, I keep going back to Iran, because Iran was a place I had an awful lot of contact with people, and there was a lot of political talk. And Iran is far from being a perfect democracy. There's a lot wrong with it there. But nevertheless, it is a democracy of, of a form. You know, people do vote. People do have strong opinions about things. Their elected people may get in and not be able to do a lot, but there is a huge interest in it. One of the ways it's, um, it's shown is the number of local newspapers. You go to a newsstand in Tehran or in one of the other larger cities in Iran, and there'll be just a, a stack of people crowding around trying to decide which paper to buy because there are so many papers with so many different opinions. And I've found in countries where there's not that much freedom is you have to go to different sources to get a oh yeah to, balance to, get, to, get a, to get a different reading. Here's the right wing, here's the left wing, mm, and so on. Yeah. Now you're an Aussie and I'm a Yankee. Would our receptions in these countries be different? I don't think it would be any different at all. They just look I at think, you as a first world traveler. Yeah, and I think generally in most of these countries you are safe. I mean, there's there's always a danger if you're in Iraq. Iraq well, you d- you don't want to be there and you know get kidnapped. That's the last thing you want to do. And similarly in places like Palestine, where there is just no really working government at the moment. But I think your chances of being kidnapped and have something happen to you, well, it's certainly not going to happen in North Korea. There's no way in the world it's going to happen. Right. The same in Iran. I, I think these countries in general are quite safe. I mean, the, the things that have been bad recently in, in Iran have been people who, you know, have, I don't want to say, you know, they've done something wrong, but they haven't done anything wrong at all. But they're nevertheless, they're targets for the Iranian government. Would the red tape you incur as an Australian or an Englishman traveling be the same as the Americans, essentially? No, I, I, I think it's easier. Again, going back to Iran, that for Australians, it's easier than Americans or British to get a visa. On the other hand, for Libya, it was easier for the British to get visas. So I, it's hard oh. to say. When you're in these countries where it's so intense and you need a little bit of normalcy from our point of view, a little bit of comfort, a little bit of air con, a little bit of people stop staring at me. What do you do for a, a break? Or do you need a break? I, I didn't need a break too much. Um, in Libya, the tourist standards, the infrastructure was not crash hot in Libya. For a country that's had so much oil, you know, they, there's very little sign of where the money's all gone. It's generally been wasted, I would say. There was one very nice hotel in the capital city, but I wouldn't say very much for any of the hotels anywhere else in the country. And the food, many people have said it's the worst food in North Africa. They should definitely import a few Moroccan chefs to show them how to do North African food. Uh, Burma has some terrific hotels, some really beautiful hotels. There must be like the first world where the journalists stay kind of hotels that you can oh, yeah. retreat yeah, there, to. There, 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 there will always be that. Yeah. What do you make of the um, warm reception President Bush got recently in Albania? 
Well, one of the funny things about Albania was I didn't intend to put Albania in this book. It was going to be eight bad countries. And then just at the very end, I just happened to go to Albania around that time. And I found it so fascinating. And the fact that it was so totally cut off from the outside world, I thought, let's, let's put Albania in as well. Having done that, I felt rather bad about it because I'd, I'd made some Albanian friends. and I Yeah, it's certainly I, not a bad land today. No, it's not. It's not a bad land at all. But I did feel a little bit bad about putting it in. But then I met them afterwards, after the book had come out. They were delighted. It was almost like, look, call us bad, call us anything. Call us, Albania just, can use Just that. call us something. Yeah, any, it's a bit like the other you know, Borat. For Kazakhstan. For Kazakhstan, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he put the place on the map. It may have all been completely so false. So it's probably the only country up. in the world where the minister of tourism would say, thank you, we're one of the bad lands. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than non-existent. Absolutely. Because it doesn't even register on most people's it European It doesn't. I mean, dreams. the only time that, that Albania has been in the news in the States in the last 10 years, I'm sure, is when George Bush went there. I'm, You've dealt with State Department advisories, I would imagine, all yeah. in the last 30 years. And given the fact that your business is selling guidebooks and American market is a big part of your, your business, what do you make of State Department advisories, whether American or Australian? I, look, they, they all suffer from the same problem, and I can understand it, that if the State Department, or in Australia it's called the DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and in British it's called the Commonwealth Office, if these people didn't warn you that you know, something might go wrong and then something did go wrong, you know, you, you're going to say, what are we paying you for? You're supposed to be out there warning us. So they're really in a, in a no-win situation. Huh. Because so they, you think that motivates State Department warnings? Oh, I think it does, yeah. The fear that something would happen and people would, would jump up and say, you know... You, you didn't tell me. You didn't tell what me. What kind of you government know, do I have? Yeah, you, you, you let me go there. You've got the CIA out there checking out things. Why didn't they check things out? But then equally, you have the countries saying, you're ruining our tourism. You're keeping all the tourists away because you're saying it's unsafe. One State Department advisory can devastate a lot of small businesses in Turkey or something. Absolutely. 100% it can. Not to mention it, mess up your book sales. Yeah, it does that as well. <laughs> we, we, we see the book sales go up and down. Are they politically motivated from the United States, do you think? I think there is a political motivation. And part of it, of course, is the connection with the country. You're, you're more likely to get a, a warning about a country in South America from the um, American State Department. Whereas if it's something going wrong in the Pacific, you're more likely to get a warning about it from the Australian one. Because it's the countries that you, know, you have the real close relationships with and where your citizens are more likely to be oh, traveling. Really? So Australia will just pay attention to countries that yeah, you've... Yeah, Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea is some, the backyard of Australia, yeah. yeah. You know, and there's been problems in Fiji periodically. Well, Fiji, you know, can score the warnings from an Australian perspective, which it might not from the, uh, the American one. What about shots? Somebody once told me that a country requires shots to protect its people from foreigners coming in and recommends shots to protect foreigners coming in from its diseases. <laughs> That's an interesting, interesting perspective. I tend to have the protection against most things that I need longer term. My yellow fever vaccination is usually kept up to date. There's lots of things I don't bother with. And you know, I, I was talking to someone just recently who was getting rabies protection. And yeah. oh. you know, the, the chance of getting bitten by a rabied animal is so rare. And you've got to get the shots if it happens. But I think to, to get it as protection, unless you're working with animals. Right. If you're, you're, do you still have to travel with that yellow international vaccination card? I, I do, yeah. I mean, there, there so you've are, got to show it at the border occasionally. The only place I've had to show it in years is, is in Africa for, right. and I think probably in South America for yellow fever. And that's really, a, that's a 10-year shot, so it isn't a, right. a regular one. How does Lonely Planet cover in guidebooks these countries that you talked about? Can you get guidebooks to all these places published by Lonely Planet? You know, the book I always look at on our list as the sort of measuring stick on this is Africa. Because we've had an Africa book out now for 30 years. We still have the only guidebook to all of Africa. There's lo lots of people have a guidebook to Kenya or to Egypt or to South Africa. But we've got the only book to all of Africa, and that means effectively 50 countries. 
And every edition of Africa we bring out, there are some countries we don't cover. You know, there are some mm. countries where to get a writer in there would be would be suicidal. I was just on a taxi heading out to Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, and he was an Algerian. And I asked him, he just went to his home country and checked it out. And I said, how did it make you feel? And he said, sad. But he said, things are getting better. And I said, is it safe for an American to travel there? And he said, no. Did he? Well, we've had writers back into Algeria for two editions. So you think Algeria is, uh, is I, becoming safer for Western? It is becoming safer, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's 100% safe, and I think right. it's, probably, it's probably a question of areas more than the whole country. Okay. Go, going back to the State Department thing, one of the things the British um, advisories do, they don't just write the whole country off. Even right. Afghanistan, they say, you know, don't go to Afghanistan unless you're very careful, but yeah. the, the, the north you need to be careful the South, you need a guy walking behind you and you need to wear a yeah. bulletproof Ter- vest. Terrorist it's, incidents are so local and then they're received as so general and so yeah, widespread. The, the whole country is looked upon as being unsafe when it can be just certain areas. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Tony Wheeler, the founder of Lonely Planet Travel Publications. And Tony's written a new book called Badlands, A Tourist on the Axis of Evil, covering all the places you'd never imagine anybody goes. Afghanistan, unless they're in a uniform, but Afghanistan, Albania, Burma, Cuba, Iran, Iraq, Libya, North Korea, Saudi Arabia. Where are you dreaming about to go on your next vacation? Tony, in all of these countries, what would you say in general terms is the plight of women? Is it good, bad, are things changing? It, it really varies from country to country. Some countries, women have a very prominent position. Like probably in Burma, you might say that they elected a woman as a leader, Aung San Suu Kyi. Other countries, they're definitely, if not second-class citizens, they're different sorts of citizens. A man's world in the streets and a yeah, world Yeah, a man's world and a woman's yeah. world, yeah. When you are traveling these countries, are people endangered by getting together with you and seeing you as a window on the West and talking to you? I, I don't think so generally. I, I, was, I was very cautious in the book about people's names if I thought there was any concern about that at all. So a lot of names have been changed and a lot of things have been disguised. All the conversations I had are absolutely as they happened. So you did have to be sensitive to that. Oh, yeah, I was very sensitive. Is part of your agenda for going through all the trouble to write this book is just that there's some value in tourists going to these countries? Look, I think so. I don't expect, as a result of doing this book, that people are going to go to Afghanistan as, a, as tourists next week, and I certainly wouldn't advise it. I think anybody who goes to Afghanistan is going to know what they're getting themselves into. But I think contact between people is always important. It's always important in both directions, us to see what's happening there and for them to meet us as well. Of all these countries, which cuisine do you think was the best? I had some very good food in Burma. I had some excellent, I had some surprisingly good, pretty straightforward, but good food in Afghanistan. I ate very well in Iran. Iran by far had the most nice restaurants. If you want McDonald's, Saudi Arabia. Now, in most of these places, you've got these strong-arm leaders. They've got a, an ego, and you, you have their portraits everywhere and statues everywhere. Where was it the most obnoxious? Who was, like, everywhere? I didn't think it was obnoxious at all. I thought it was fantastic art, and that, that's really North Korea. I'm just really concerned that when it finally does fall over, that the things will be destroyed, because it's very difficult to find that fantastic Maoist art, you know, the Cultural Revolution stuff that was everywhere at one yeah. stage, and it's just disappeared in China now. You really can't find it anymore. Fantastic um, Maoist art. Yeah, Kami Kitsch. Kami Kitsch. Yes, that's the word. You know, I'm into Kami Kitsch. Yeah, uh, it's great stuff. Tony, is there a Badlands 2 in your future? There certainly is. I've got a list of contenders, places that I'd love to add. Syria will be right up there. Um, Israel, Palestine. That'd be a, a really interesting place to visit and, and contrast the two sides. And more than two sides, lots of sides to that argument. More countries from Africa, Zimbabwe, for example. Congo would be interesting to add. I'd like to do something else from, from the, the Pacific. Maybe look at PNG or mm-hmm. 
lots and, of other countries. And the world's in flux, and uh, the list of badlands may well, may change in five yeah, years. Yeah, there'll be some, there'll be something new next year, I'm sure. Tony Wheeler, founder of Lonely Planet Publications, uh, author of Badlands: A Tourist on the Axis of Evil. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. They call me a dreamer. Well, maybe I am, but I know that I'm burning to see those faraway places with a strange sound in Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback, archived audio on demand, and podcast extras. You'll find it in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.